You're listening to the Viral Volley Podcast Podcast. Now here's your host, Rob, on the mic. Hey, good day, everyone, and welcome back to the Viral Volley Podcast, the week seven results and uh, week eight uh, upcoming match edition. But uh, as always, got Dan Fenn of Lewis, Dave Hunt of Pepperdine, and Jay Hosick of George Mason. Another entertaining week seven. I wanted to ask these guys what results caught their eyes, but not before we talk about Ball State cooling off or everyone else rising to the occasion. Uh, want to get your thoughts on it? We'll start with uh, Jay. It's been a little quiet over there in the uh, Jay Hossack quadrant on my Zoom screen. <laughs> That's the way I like it. Um, no, I, I don't think Ball State's cooling off. I think everybody's figuring out how to slow them down a little bit. You know, I, I, they're they're really good at blocking defense. Uh, they they <clears throat> dig a lot of balls and they trans really well because Quinn Isaacs is running really good offense. It's still fast. You know, the kid's 15, 20 feet off the net. And he's still rifling it to the outside. So. Um, that's, I, I don't think it's anything about them cooling off. I think people have figured out Janice had 31 kills and hit 636. I mean, that's pretty darn good. Sounds like he's cooling off. Yeah, he's <laughs> a little bit. He had 750 the other day. So yeah. yeah, the kids slowing down a bit, but, um, you know, again, it's, it's easy. I don't want to say fly under the radar. It's easier to get wins or it's easier to be successful as a pit, as a hitter when nobody knows anything about you. However, when everybody starts to figure it out, the separation starts to happen with the great players and the great teams when people know about them and they can still be successful. That's what's going to start happening. Yep. Jump uh, to Dave. Yeah, I agree with Jay. It, it's a different skill set to, to be on top of the mountain and have to fight everybody off or individually, right? Like if everyone starts to sit on your fastball, your fastball was blowing people away. Now what's your secondary pitch and can you adjust? And so we'll learn a little bit about about those guys and um yeah i mean are we talking about results i forgot now is this in a j but <laughs> results that caught our eye <laughs> these are topics within the results of the week yeah <laughs> i mean we we touched on it a little bit earlier just long beach state going without their setter to ucla and, and uh battling hard I, I just thought that was from a coaching standpoint you probably got to be pleased not happy with the loss but pleased that your your team competed and it was clear that they weren't running the offense like they normally would, right? I think their middle's got to combine like seven sets or eight sets. So the pins carried a big load and did a nice job for them. Yep. And Dan? Well, on the Bull State topic, uh, certainly Loyola, uh, they, they bring Cole in and uh, they got Parker Van Buren, who's on a tear as well, as well as Caleb is. Um, I mean, Caleb's putting up not only Neva Player of the Year numbers, but he's putting up National Player of the Year numbers uh, and against some good competition. So, um you know, hopefully, you know, uh, but he's cooling off, right? He only hit six something. <laughs> Don't like that. But Caleb's got a night and he's got a center that's putting him in the ball in the window where he needs it from anywhere, which is pretty impressive. Uh, Angelo got slowed down a little bit, but he's still coming off an ab, ab injury. So I wonder how that'll be a piece for them. How does he stay healthy towards the end of the year? The ab things can be a little nagging and aggravating. And so, uh, but he certainly balances that team out and, you know, Loyola's got three really good pins, Colton, Cole, uh, you know, and Parker, who we're talking about with the center, who's got a ton of experience, who's for some reason people forgot about a little bit. And so, uh, so that's why they were preseason picked to win the conference, I think, in terms of that. And so, uh, but um, I mean, other results in our Miva conference, uh, certainly Lindenwood put it to us. They got 13 aces. It was a great win by those guys at their place and uh, put a ton of serving pressure. Their opposite, A.J. Lewis, had 
28 or 29 kills. He did a really nice job for them. And they've got three pins. And Lindenwood's going to beat some teams, I think, if they, especially when they're, you know, playing like that from that standpoint. And so and you saw Ohio State – you saw Purdue go five with Bull State. Uh, Purdue got uh, their Chile guy back, Vincente. Uh, and he's doing some nice things and have leveled them out. And then uh, – but then Purdue went over to Ohio State, and Ohio State beat Purdue in three. Uh, and so, and then you got McKendry who got two wins. Uh, and so McKendry is sitting at, uh, three and one now and loyal is sitting at four and oh, and ball States three and one. And so I don't know, a lot of parody in the conference and continue to, uh, will, will continue to be so. So I, I gotta interrupt Dan with two things. One, I, he kept saying three pins, three pin, this team's got three pins. I was thinking everyone's got three pins. And then I was thinking to Dan's lineup, Dan doesn't have three pins. So that's why he keeps saying it. <laughs> Yeah, so I was just like, I kept hearing three, and I was like, "Oh, that now makes sense." I, but then, I mean, three. I mean, three effective pins is all I'm saying. Do I mean? Yeah, no, no, that, it made sense. I was just like, everyone's got three, and then uh, wait, yeah, yeah. wait, you guys have pin hitters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the other one is, I just want to have the joy when I go to coach that Dan has when he's talking about results in the Miva. You just see this like happy, like three zero, three, yeah. And I'm just like, man, that's that's pure joy right there. But he didn't mention a team called Lindenwood who played him this last week. And <laughs> I, did. He talked about it. <laughs> I gave them props. That, that they were impressive. Uh, Joe's doing a nice job with that group. So uh, I don't know. I think I think when coaches have been around and they've been battling and trying to make their teams better, and you start to see them be successful. Yeah, it's good for the sport. It's it's you got to be happy for them. That's why they're grinding away and doing it. You know, yeah. when uh, Jay took the Mason job and then took his team to the NCAA tournament, how awesome was that? And Dave took over for Marv, and you know he's yeah. at the NCAA tournament where I am. I don't know. That stuff's neat because the community's small, and to see your friends be successful in the environment is pretty neat to be a part of. So, oh, no doubt. Uh, where are we at there? Did I, did I get you, Jay, already on that one? You did, but I want to I want to give a shout out to my boy Spencer Wickens. Kid had twenty what twenty kills, hit four thirty two. I know you lost the match day, but kid's on fire. The six and under club, and he's crushing them. Good for him. No, he he did well in the one that we won. The one that we lost, not so hot. Oh. Not so hot. He cooled <laughs> off. He cooled off, but not to Jenna's numbers, unfortunately. That would have been. Well, and, and we talk about you talk about pin hitters. Uh, Janky and Gianni are back for Grand Canyon. Uh, and the, the two-headed monster for them. So they're probably going to start picking up a couple more wins here down the line too. So, Hey, Dave, was, think, that pretty, was it pretty packed? Uh, the first night was – the second night would have been, except we had played in the afternoon on Sunday. So um, – but Grand Canyon does a good job with all their athletics events of just it's, – it's really well run in terms of their facilities, people, and just how they carry everything. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that pre-match rave before all the games, is that how they get everyone in there? Yeah, I mean that's what I was getting into. So <laughs> you, you were at the rave undercover. Yeah, yep, trying to stay calm. <laughs> Somebody please give me a video of that. Uh, it'll be yeah, my my blue and orange glow sticks can after it. Let's jump to our next one. UC Santa Barbara getting it done and scrappily. I mean, two wins, BYU. Um, pretty impressive. Uh wanted to get you guys' thoughts on it. Start with Jay on that one. <clears throat> I I think. BYU is mortal when they're away from Salt Lake City or away from Provo. Uh, I think they're having a little bit of a challenge right now with their setter. I don't know if he's the, if he's going to be the answer that they're looking for. And Davide uh, is carrying a massive, massive load for that team. And it, you, you focus your energies on that one guy 
it's going to be pretty tough for a team like that to be successful against the teams they're playing. So I'm not surprised. I, I, I like it. I told you guys last week I didn't think it was going to be a fun match to watch, and it really wasn't, to be honest with you. I know they went 3-2 on the second night, but Santa Barbara is just better than them. Yep. Let's jump over to Dan. Yeah, I think Gardenia's arm's going to be sore for sure <laughs> by the end of the year. Uh, but, yeah, Santa Barbara's just got a separation piece, I think, from them right now. Uh, I, I, think, I don't care whether they were traveling or at home. I think uh, BYU is still working through some pieces, and – my guess is Sean's goal is to kind of figure out those pieces that are going to help them level out uh, by the time they get to the conference tournament to make a late push in terms of where his team's at and all that stuff. And certainly he's got some talent, so he's just got to figure out uh, the right flow and what works the best for them. So, yeah. How are you, Dave? <clears throat> yeah, it, Santa Barbara is just a little more polished right now, but somebody was talking about Penn State late in the NCAA tournament. You wouldn't want to face that, but I wouldn't want to face BYU. <laughs> You know, a Gardini's last, potentially his last match. Now you got to go slow him down. And everyone knew the ball was going to go to him against Santa Barbara. And he still was hitting like 900 in the set three or something. It was ridiculous. And he's got the, anytime you're 6'10 and have an arm like him, you're, he's got the ability to just take over and, and go off on somebody. So uh, they're going to be pretty good. Yeah. Um, right. I was looking at the box and gosh, the, the, was it the pin hitters and um, their young middle for Santa Barbara have really risen the occasion. That set distribution was insane. Chalmers, 16 kills. Wilcox, 15 kills. He had Todorov, 11 kills. Amoroso, 11 kills. And Paragas, 47 assists. So, you know, that team can spread it out. And when they're all on, that is a scary team to see in the playoffs for sure. So uh, uh, let's jump to our final week seven result topic. It's Penn State. It's lonely at the top. I mean, they're atop the EIVA. They're in a really good rhythm and some uh, good wins. We'll just, uh, we'll go over to uh, Dan on this one. Well, I might, I might defer to Jay in terms of, I saw Harvard the NJIT uh, and I didn't really get to watch that. I saw some of the box score stuff, but certainly Penn State is alone on the top now. Uh, I thought, you know, they were going to, they beat St. Francis pretty handily, uh, 3-0, and I was looking forward to that NGIT match, but then you see Harvard kind of come through and win that. Um, so, you know, Jay, I don't know if you got to see anybody or look at it, but I'd be curious just to see. I think Penn State is alone on the top, and I think it's going to be whether they can sustain that mentality to stay focused and not let a match slip where they shouldn't in terms of that. Yeah, no, I, I think you nailed it. I mean, obviously, Penn State, they returned literally everybody from their team last year. And that's a team that a couple of those guys have been playing together since club and they're, they're connecting really, really well. And, you know, the, the, the fact remains is that Penn state uh, will be tested. It, the challenge is obviously, will everybody be healthy? I, I know St. Francis has always felt like the little brother to Penn state. And so when they walk into that gym, they're just, there's just an aura about it that, you know, you kind of you kind of know you're going to take it to them a little bit, and I thought St. Francis would respond a little bit better than they did. The challenge with NGIT and Harvard is NGIT starting Sutter went down with an ankle roll, and mm. when he is not on the court, the next guy is not bad. He's young, uh, he's six seven, he's tall, but does he run an efficient offense like Roque does? And I I don't think the answer is yes. Uh, and I think you know there's a there's a little bit of a trend if you will, across the country, the teams that are really good consistently have a really good setter. Uh, and I know that that's kind of a duh thing for a lot of people, but it's, it's, yeah, you got two of them, uh, you know, but those other teams have three pins. Oh, you know, that's right. Two, two setters and three pins. So, you know, uh, 
But no, the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, Penn State's going to be pushed a little bit down the line if everybody's healthy. But the, I think the reality is, is that everybody's fighting to get into the playoffs right now at the NBA. And Harvard's a good team. They haven't played in a couple of years. Nobody's talking about them. they got a couple of really good middles that are young. they got a couple of outside hitters that are not too bad. Harvard's a good team, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, there's some new teams this year that are starting to set, starting to pull themselves up a little bit in, in the NBA, and that's fun to watch. Hey, Jay, St. Francis, Brooklyn, can they are they in the conference this year, right? They are, are they this post- year, but they're not starting next year. Are they postseason eligible? I would assume so, yes. Yeah, I just, yeah, it was, yeah, because it's six yeah. teams for you guys, right? Six teams this year, and then moving forward, we'll see what we do when we are down to six teams if we keep everybody, if we go back to four. Yep. And let's end it with uh, Dave. <clears throat> yeah, I think from the outside, the AVA is down from where they have been the last few years, right? And Jay, hit on it, uh, you lost almost all your starters from last year, and I think other teams are in that boat. NJIT has some key pieces, but they lost their best guy, right? The, uh, the Spaniard, Gimeno. Yeah, the Spaniard, yeah. I mean, he was a huge part of it. So uh, just on the whole, they're down, and, and that combined with the fact that Penn State brought everyone back, it's going to be interesting to see how does Penn State you know, once they get to the end, right? Have they been challenged enough uh, to go in the NCAA tournament? Because I think it's it's not going to be enough to just say, oh, we made it to a tournament again, right? With that group, there's some high expectations. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're making this a quick segment because we're going to go to what the fans are asking for, which is our fan questions, not just a question. The guys agreed to do questions of the week. But before that, I wanted them to pick the matches they're keeping an eye on in week eight. And we'll start with Danny because he just like moved right over to his sheet as he, uh, if you can see on the screen there. <laughs> well, I, I'm paying attention to my conference uh, right now for sure. Um, you know, you got some matchups in conference. Lindenwood uh, is headed to Bowl Here's State. that smile coming out. You see him just, yeah, there it goes. How can you see it? My beard is so big right now. So anyway, Lindenwood's, uh, <laughs> Lindenwood's a Bowl State. Uh, we've got... Um, we're playing Purdue Fort Wayne on Thursday and uh, McKendry's got Loyola and then we've got Loyola as well. And uh, so there's going to be some good matchups. You got Ohio state uh, versus uh, Lindenwood at the same time. And so I think in our conference play is certainly what I'm going to key on in terms of that. And so, uh, but outside of that, I always like watching Pepperdine play. So we'll see how those guys go against uh, SC. Do you know what I mean? So, so yeah. All right. How about you, Dave? What are you, what are you keeping an eye on in a week eight? GCU and, and BYU, GCU has got to go up to BYU. And it seemed like last year they played up there like four or five times and they played well. I think where everybody else freaks out or a lot of teams freak out up there. Oh, we can't serve and the altitude and this and that. I think GCU thrives up there. So uh, I wouldn't be shocked if GCU takes both of them. Um, but yeah, I think there'll be good matches. Yep. And then the J. Uh, I'm going to be watching, uh, two EIBA matches specifically one, first of all, before I do that, got my boy Schweisky coming down this weekend, playing him. That's going to be fun to see Schweisky's army, which by the way, uh, just lost their assistant coach to Penn state, uh, Pat Schwarren, who has been there at Princeton for the last six or seven years, helping build that program with Sam into a national name now is at Penn state mid season. That's quite a coup. Um, <laughs> but the matches I'll be watching are St. Francis and NJIT. That's St. Francis of Pennsylvania. I want to see if St. Francis can get back on the winning track. And if NJIT's starting setter is in there, it could be an interesting match to watch. And the other one I'm going to watch is Penn State and NJIT. 
Uh, and again, the starting situation, I don't know how long Roque Nito is out. I'm hoping he's back this weekend is that'll help NGIT's cause, but those are the two matches that I'll be watching the most. Yep. Odd in mine uh, for the big West, just because it, it seems like it's a quiet week. Uh, only Long Beach State and Cal State Northridge seem to be in action for the week. And uh, Long Beach State will be taking on Stanford in their home. And then you got uh, Cal State Northridge playing uh, St. Catharines. So, uh, which is a, is it an independent or just a, I believe it's independent, right? I thought St. Catharines was NAIA. Okay. <clears throat> so not a whole lot happening in the Big West. Teams are off for the break. And uh, with that, I want to go to the segment that I'm sure a handful of us are looking forward to the way you view it. It could be a great dialogue of conversation or perceived as a lion den, depending on your paradigm. So uh, without fan questions, the quickest one we're going to hit on is what will the NCAA tournament be eight teams and how should those teams be selected? You said it'd be a quick one. So I'm gonna let you guys run the gamut on this one. Well, I might know the most on that. So I'll take it first. So the um, championship committee is within a proposal right now of trying to expand the bracket. Um, and so it's in the works. I think when beach volleyball, women's beach volleyball expanded and women's ice hockey expanded, it opened the door uh, for men's volleyball certainly to push because of the percentage of numbers that we need to be at that we're not at right now. Um, the details of that exact proposal I cannot share, but I can tell you that there's looking at a couple of different things on whether it's eight, 10, 12 teams, do you know what I mean? Because with the expansion of the SIAC um, and then after the second year be able to um, ask for a qualifying bid and they want to kind of try to equate out how many conference bids there are and how many at large. And so ideally you'd be at six and six and that would be at 12. And so, so it's good stuff. It's just probably not as fast as all of us want it, you know, and it might be, you know, 24 before it happens. And so, uh, and I think with the restructure of the NCA over the next few months, that's continuing to happen. This has some impact. And so, but I can tell you that it's in the pipeline. They're working on it. Our championship committee is working hard to kind of make some of those changes and help the growth of the sport. It's just probably not as soon as everybody wants it. So, yeah. And I'll piggyback on that because we're hosting next year. Um, you know, we're talking in the NCAA and ABCA about how all this is going to pan out next year. I think the challenge and why it might not. And, and Dan obviously is the, the expert on this being on the committee, but the challenge is, is that, the NEC, which breaks off next year, you don't automatically get uh, postseason qualified. There's a two-year waiting period, unless your conference has a, a history of being traditionally strong and winning championships, which is why the Big West did not have to do that two-year waiting period. Plus, you have the SAIC, the, the, the uh, HBC conference. They're starting up. They're going to have their one more year on top of this one. Um, and then... What we thought was going to help was when the GLVC came into play, but now it doesn't, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, and it might be, it might be one less than we had anticipated, but you know, there's other conferences, you know, the a 10s looking at some other schools. And I know that there's some schools in the big West and schools on the West coast conference that are thinking about it. So there's, there's going to be movement. I hope, I hope it's in 24 when it starts. And I really hope we go to 12 teams instead of 10 or eight, but you know, that remains to be seen. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to speak up only on something to keep an eye on. It, it's no information, but keep an eye, Dan talked about it, keep an eye on what the NCAA does in the next few months. Uh, there's a lot of reform going on, and I, it hopefully has positive impact, but I think we're all just, none of us really know. And it's going to be that, it's just going to have a, a large impact 
on a sport like men's volleyball, Olympic sports in general, I think are going to be affected by what the NCAA tries to do in the next few months. There is a committee from the IOC that is working in direct correlation with the NCAA uh, and four sports have been identified as at-risk sports, uh, men's volleyball being one of those. So that's a good thing in the terms of they're having the conversations and talking about it, what they can do to kind of help uh, sustain and continue to build men's volleyball uh, on that side of stuff, which is, so that's good. Yeah, I'm sure COVID didn't help with that because I know in speaking with some NCA representatives during COVID, they had significant reduction in uh, even just communication staff at the time. So I, I imagine they haven't recovered from that because they have to start seeing revenue in order to bring people back. So um, definitely something to follow uh, these upcoming months. Uh, 2024 is the, the year you said, Dan, to, to watch out for? I think I think that's the tentative year right now. At least the last thing. I'm on a couple of committees. And so, but uh, I'll certainly give info on the podcast when I can, you know, just in terms of, I think it's good for people to know, you know what I mean? That there's growth yeah. and things happening behind the doors. So, yeah. Yep. All right, next question. Uh, some teams seem to prioritize defense and in-system passing to run an efficient offense, whereas others seem to disregard being in-system and just go with a heavy swingers on the pins and accept being out of system. As coaches, if these are your choices, what direction are you going and what do you see the direction of NCAA volleyball in this area? Who's jumping I'll go in? first. I'll go first because our team, our team this year is drastically different than our team last year. I think this is my fifth year as head coach. I think we've changed offensive philosophies probably every year. Um, so yeah, it, to give you a little insight, the first, the priority of offense is to kill the ball. Um, so you look at kill percentage first and you have a good metric for what do you need to kill the ball at in order to be successful. So passing obviously helps that, but it's not directly correlated. So that being said, in system offense, you should hit for a higher percentage, but if you have guys that could hit for an ideal kill percent, even in medium system, out of system, then your passing becomes less of a priority. What's correlated to winning is your ability to not get aced. So uh, Dan talked about 13 aces uh, against his team, right? So I think it's a combination of how many times you get aced and then how many service errors you have. Um, if you can be on the positive side of that, then, then it's pretty good. So those, those two factors probably rank the highest for me. Uh, then you start to break it down into your transition and your ball control. And, and, you know, fans love the idea of these long rallies and guys diving around and popping the ball up. But really that means that your kill percentage is very high. So uh, if you have guys that can terminate on the pins, um, then it usually works out pretty well. I would say historically, the best example of this has been BYU. Uh, people look at it and say, well, they haven't won a national championship recently. Yeah, but they've won like five of the last 10 MPSF championships. So um, obviously what they're doing is, is pretty good. Yeah, they haven't won the national championship, but you got to realize how hard it is to win a national championship. How many yep. things have to go in your favor to win a national championship? Uh, there's a lot of luck involved. So uh, BYU historically has probably gone that route of having three pins that could uh, terminate the ball and it's worked out pretty well. Yep. Anyone else want to jump in, take that? Yeah. I mean, look at the numbers and usually they, they balance out somewhere around 50, 50. I mean, give or take a couple of percentage points of being in system versus out of system. And that could be either on service or on defense. If you get a soft block, you get a pass that can make them, you know, get them back in the system, so to speak. 
I think the, the real challenge is, is personnel every year. You know, you, you got a couple of kids that maybe are really good in system and then kind of develop into an out of system hitter and others that are just kind of big, you know, long lever kind of guys that get up and hit the ball real hard and get you out of trouble. You know, you, everybody seems to have at least one guy that when you're in trouble, you can chuck it up to and that guy can get you out of, get you out of trouble. But the other thing is, is the second contact has to be good. I mean, you, you can't just get a ball up in the air and be 25 feet off. And then your second contact, leave the guy 12 feet off and then hope that he's going to get you out of trouble. If you can get him close to the, to the net where he can see the block and be able to use it to his advantage. Those are where the real uh, successful out of system hitters are. And if you, if you can't put that second contact in the right spot, that's a big, big challenge. And we're, we're facing that right now with our squad is that our second contacts our non of contacts are all over the place and no hitters can get into the rhythm. And so we're struggling with that. And that's, and that's something we work on all the time. And I, I love, I love hearing people go, why isn't this team doing this? And why isn't that team focusing on that? And why are they, do you not think that we know what we're doing? I mean, we've all been around the game for a long time. We might know a few things. You, just because you say that you want it to work doesn't mean it automatically happens. You got to get, you got to get better at that skill. And we all go into the gym with different focuses every week and trying to get better at little skills. You know, we, we talk about filling all the cups up with water and getting them all to be filled as best we can. And some weeks you got to add a little bit more to one cup because you're really deficient in that, in that area, but it, it's not like we haven't been working on it. So yeah, that, that's, that's my take on the whole thing. We, we missed 22 serves on Sunday. I think 22 serves. And uh, I told the guys to serve in and they didn't. And I, if I had that power, I guarantee you, I would just go down to 7-Eleven and just write out the lottery numbers and I'd collect my millions and I'd be living in one of the beach houses over there. <laughs> Anything else to add on that topic? Uh, yeah, I, I could go on quite a bit. <laughs> but uh, I think there's a couple of things for me. Um, you're personnel driven sometimes. And so what are my pieces and what do they do the best? Like last year, we have 6-9 Kunin who can hit us out of a lot of situations. And so uh, that certainly changes the dynamic of our team the past few years. We don't have that guy this year, but we have 6'11 Mitchum, you know, and how do we effectively use him as much as possible? And but two setters that you keep reminding us of. We do. Uh, and so, <laughs> but, so I think I had to look at my personnel. We had some, some guys that unfortunately uh, haven't been able to play this year, whether it's due to injury or one guy went a different, you don't always know what the inner team works are in, uh, you know, and what you're trying to work with and what's going on, whether a piece might have left that you were expecting to have or, you know, and it's like, hey, why doesn't that coach do this or that? Well, you don't know where those pieces are at. And I look at it and go, how do I get my best seven guys out there? And what's the best system that's going to work for them now? Now, there are certain things from a philosophy standpoint that I believe are true that I try to do, but that's even changing a little this year. We've always been a, a really block oriented team. And you can go back historically and look at our numbers. We're top five in the country the past 10 years. But, like, our pieces have to change sometimes. So we need to get a little bit better this year at some things that we haven't done as well in the past to make us more effective. If you look at Ohio State when they won their two championships, they just went and ripped it. You know what I mean? They didn't care about their errors. And, and it worked out really well for them from that standpoint. I'm of a different philosophy. I'm like, well, what are we point scoring at? And what's our error rate at? Can we keep our error rate below 15% and point score above 40%? And what are those numbers? And do I have a green light guy here or there? Or do we have a floater when he needs to be below like 10 or nine? 
Uh, and this jump guy's point scoring at 52. So his error rate might be able to be at 20 or 21 or something like that. And we actually teach our guys these statistics and what they mean and where they want to be at, what the numbers we're talking about, what we're trying to get our team at. Uh, and then Dave then on a couple of points about just, you know, not only point scoring, but the transition and the side out phase. And I thought Alan Knight did a really good medium system thing at the ABCA the past few years. And it really talks about, both your offense and your defense at this medium system. And he put it in his correlations and how much they were trying to work on it. I didn't think it had a big reason to why they won two national championships because they were so effective in medium system, uh, whether they were defending it or whether they were siding up from. It. So, and probably the last thing is, I think there's a magic number a little bit like, Hey, can you get it 17 points per game? And it's, it fluxes a little bit, but We've done some data over the championships over the past 10 years and looked at all these teams that were in the final four and how they got to those 17 points and where they're getting their numbers, where their kills a little higher, where their aces a little higher, where their blocks a little higher, and then kind of how they were getting there. And I bet right now, if you went and looked at the top five or six teams, they're probably somewhere over that range or in that range in terms of points that they're doing per game. And then how many points are they? If I give up more than six errors per game in points, I'm usually not winning. Uh, or, or not consistently in terms of that. So just some numbers to throw out that I think are important as you're looking at some of this. Here, uh, I'm going to piggyback on what two things on what Dan said, and hopefully we don't run long here. Um, everyone looks at Ohio State, right? They won two national championships back to back. If Oliver Martin doesn't get called over on an overpass, they're probably not winning that one at Penn State, right? UCLA in the semifinal, tough call in set five. The other one is, Long Beach State wins at UCLA uh, 2018. UCLA is up four points in, in set four, right? A few things go a different way. UCLA serves the ball in a little bit more, maybe when we're not looking at that. So don't just follow the team that won the national championship and say, here's a trend, right? You have to understand why they're doing something. Um, the other one is late in season, when you're playing good teams, right? Conference championship, NCAAs. Everyone has figured out how to get you out of system. So they serve tough. And everyone has figured out how to not get aced. So you don't get those free points, right? And um, so it's teams that play medium and out of system really well or really efficiently that end up being pretty good. So everyone should kill the ball at 51% in system. That's the national average when the ball is perfect pass. I think it's actually 54%, then 51 if it moves a little bit off left or right. So you're supposed to kill the ball there. It's when the ball gets off, you're playing six to 12 feet against really good teams very often. Uh, how good or efficient are you there? So. Well, I think we're going to end that question there because I know there's one that we wanted to address. Uh, and I know that one, uh, some of us have some commitments here in the upcoming moments, but uh, wanted it wasn't a question. Uh, one question, it was from a bunch of questions that were thrown up on a board that shall not be named just because <laughs> some people have said something about that. <laughs> but. Uh, um, someone has, it is accused that, uh, of the panel that, uh, there's been some criticism of a particular team's, uh, scheduling of, uh, challenging matches. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be, I'll be obvious, uh, criticism of Hawaii's schedule. Um, good team, no doubt. Excellent teams. I mean, huge respect and watching them play for the decades now. Um, but you know, I, I think the fans are, are perceiving it incorrectly. And I think they want to get the coach's perspective on um, scheduling away from Hawaii 
versus having teams go there. And we did talk a little bit about it beforehand. And I know that's been a huge theme. Uh, people saying, oh, why will I always bash in Hawaii? Um, so I wanted to open that up to you guys and see who wants to go into our open forum or the lion's den. Yeah, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that question because I've probably been the biggest. Uh... <laughs> Jay, which way you move? Are you moving towards me? Which way are you moving on the screen? <laughs> um, I've been probably the, the loudest about that, you know, or the most critical. Um, I just, Hawaii's got a good team. They're well coached. Uh, for those people that know Milan, I mean, he might have, he might be the most overqualified assistant coach in the history of assistant coaches. Um, but I've been the most critical, right? When's the last time that they came to Pepperdine or UCLA um, and played a two-match series? It's been a while. Now, that being said, behind the scenes, there's been a MPSF Big West conversation about can we get cross-conference scheduling, like a mandated here's when you're playing or who, here's who you're playing. And Charlie has been the biggest advocate for that. So people don't know that. And I've been critical, but he's also been the strongest one saying, hey, we got to do this. This is good for, for everybody out here in the West Coast. So, um, yeah, I, I wish they didn't travel all the way across the country and play Queens and Lincoln Memorial at their place. I wish they would just fly into L.A. and, and play us or play UCLA, but they don't. So that's the deal. You know, and, and I touched upon it a few weeks ago about cost, uh, but let's also talk about time. Uh, you know, the, historically, they were, when the Outrigger was a big tournament, you know, they had the, the winner of the MEVA, the winner of the MPSF, Hawaii, and uh, the EIBA, and it was Penn State forever and a day. And then when the tournament happened, you know, there was a chance for teams to go out there and spend a couple of days ahead of time to kind of get acclimated a little bit to the time zone. It's not... It's not perfect, but at least an extra day or two here and there can help out. But when you look at the cost of what that is, you know, the average cost to go out there for just three days is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $12,000. When you consider flights, consider hotels, you consider per diems, you know, all that stuff that goes along with it. And rental cars, I mean, you go during sometime during the year and sometimes they're really jacked up because there's a golf tournament going on during that time. And Hawaii's limited as to how many cars they have. But here's the other thing to keep in mind. When you're an East Coast team, you go out to play Hawaii in Hawaii, a 7 p.m. match time is 12 a.m. for them, for these kids. I don't know what, what people think is beneficial or not beneficial for a college student to do, but I can guarantee you starting a two and a half hour process at 12 midnight is probably not going to work out in your favor. And there's arguments on both sides. Oh, it's the experience. or Oh, it's this and that. Yeah, it's great but it's not going to be a winning combination for a lot of teams. And especially if your team can't afford to go out there for an extra day or two to acclimate somewhat, then what are you really doing? And it's no slam against Hawaii. You can't change their location, but there's probably a massive reason why a lot of teams from the Midwest and East coast don't choose to go there all the time because it's expensive and the timing really sucks for the players. It's, it's not conducive to their, you know, the overall well being and playing. So you know, I know people say, well, the college students, they stay up till 3 in the a.m. anyways. It's not that big of a deal, but no, it's a big deal. It matters. I was going to say, are your guys going to bed before midnight? Because I'm having a hard time getting our guys. <laughs> I, I don't follow them like that. So that, you know, that's probably smart. Bed, yeah, good move. So my yeah. added piece would be, so like notoriously, Hawaii never traveled. Back when they were in the MPSF outside of conference stuff, they didn't travel anywhere. And it was a knock 
that they didn't play well off the island. Uh, and oh, what Charlie has done over the past, you know, his coaching there and which helped them win a national championship was they started to play more off the island and started to play better volleyball off the island. Um, so, and I think that's a direct correlation to them being able to be successful and, and win that national championship. Um, you know, I think the next step that Dave's just, I think is wanting a little bit, Hey, California's right next door versus Lincoln Memorial come play a few of those schools. It, it, it certainly helps us and it helps you in terms of that. So I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that in that conversation. I think we actually head to Hawaii and it is tough and it's over a $30,000 trip. You know, and those guys are always gracious and those guys help out with things, which is really nice uh, the Hawaii athletic department and Charlie. And so they've always treated us really good when we go. So that's really nice. And so, and the culture there is great to play. That's why the reason I want to go there and play is because of the fans and everything you play in front of. It's, it's an awesome experience for those guys and, they packed that place and they love volleyball. And so, uh, and it was neat. Hawaii made a, a Midwest trip uh, and played us in Loyola. And that was a couple of years ago. And that was pretty neat when those guys came out and we packed the arena and uh, had a good following for that and everything. And so, uh, but uh, I don't know, I think, you know, I think if that Midwest NPSF challenge happened, it'd be great for volleyball. You're going to see some really good matches and hopefully they can get that off the ground. So. Yeah. Dan hit, uh, hit on a good point too. Charlie. And I think, their tourism or whoever they've always done a great job in terms of when you go out there, I don't think you're just splitting that bill by yourself. So he's done a great job of that. He's, they make money, right? They make money hosting these when they have good teams, they get big crowds and, but they just won the national championship and I'm trying to compete against them. So damn, I'm going to be a little crotchety until, you know, we start winning. <laughs> There's an honest answer. I'm crotchety yeah. because they just won a national championship. There you go, fans. You got it. He's make appointments for that day when you get crotchety, just letting you know. Yeah. All right. Good, good, good. <laughs> Well, I think we've got to end there because of time constraints, but I wanted to thank Dan Friend of Lewis, Dave Hunt of Pepperdine, and Jay Hasek of George Mason from week to week, giving us the good stuff, the inside view of what's happening in NCAA Division I, II volleyball. Uh, follow their teams and programs. Go to volleyballbank.com or off the blocks, TV, streaming, listings, and all that. Because uh, I think the more eyes you can put on our sport, the more it'll grow. And I know there are a ton of other questions, which I'll, I'll hold till next week, because there's some really good ones. And, and I actually had a bunch myself. So uh, thanks, you guys. Good luck this week. I'm looking forward to seeing results in your favor. <laughs>